Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's, um, let me see, it's Sunday afternoon, and uh, I'm going to, I had someone over for Shabbos, and uh, he said that he was really, Interested and turned on by the Gaonic material we've been doing lately from Nasana Babli. And so, and, you know, he'd like to, the guy knows how to learn. And uh, therefore, I'll do a little bit more because, again, these are sources that are around, but most people aren't familiar with. And here we're going to deal with uh, questions of the pecking order in yeshivas and formalities, extreme formalities in the Gaonic yeshivas. The like of which you don't have today, but maybe I'm wrong, sort of. Anyway, this is being sponsored once again by uh, Gideon Miller in in, in uh, Houston, uh, for which we thank him, and he and I cooperate on something today. He's a he's well, you might see he's on my unofficial staff. He's one of the helpers, which I'm very grateful for. And uh, let me uh, let me uh, uh, do it this way. There's a uh, passage in. Uh, in Nasana Babli, who again is Nathan of, of Baghdad, okay? I repeat, we're not the, for those who weren't in here before, this is not the Tana or anything like that. Uh, it's called Baba. At that time, it was like what we call today Iraq, you know, in the uh, Islamic uh, Caliphate, specifically the Abbasid uh, Caliphate of the 10th century, when uh, the state was going through various transformations. And as I mentioned, this will be no to what we're going to talk about today. The Iranian influence was very pronounced. The Arabs conquered Iran, but meanwhile, as often happens, when you conquer a very strong culture, sometimes the culture uh, sort of t- takes over the conquerors. And to a certain extent, it's very fascinating, actually, how the Arab-Iranian thing worked out. And as we know, Al Hayyam they're fighting each other. Although this week, in a temporary move, Iran and Saudi Arabia, like, you know, sort of made up, but, you know, does it garnished. They're, they're really, they're planning to kill each other. And uh, this goes back not only to the Sunni and Shiite thing, which is a very important chilek, but it even predates that. So um, let me say this. The Iranian influence was one of extreme formality. <clears throat> the Persians, the Iranians and the Persians, had an empire going all the way back, or a series of empires. And these empires, like that of Cyrus, the Achaemenid Empire, and the Sasanian Empire, and so forth, um, really developed a very strong st- state structure uh, infused in the culture and the uh, notions of power. It was felt that they should be publicly uh, manifested in, symbo- in symbolic ways so you should know who's who and what's what. And therefore, the Persian court is, as far as I'm aware, uh, the source of a lot of what we I- identify with royal court ceremonies, the b- extreme bowing down and the rules and regulations, and you don't turn your face and, you know, and you have to wait till the king says this. Like you see a little bit, you get you get a tiny glimpse of this from Akashverish's story with Miguel Sester when she said, oh, you can't come into the room 
without the king extending the, the, the scepter to you. You know, and that's, that's like a tiny piece of the great formality that's, that's there. Um, in Europe, this was later picked up by the Spanish. Uh, the Spanish court ceremonial was extremely formalistic. Uh, and, you know, the public likes the formality stuff. Even today, they like the queen and the king in England, you know, to do things in a certain way. It was just a shtick, you know. But nevertheless, people like the formality. And in the from world also, they like certain formalities. You understand? Certain formalities. Although those change. Now, I'm talking about the Kufa said Gaonim. When you had the two yeshivas in Babel in Baghdad by the 10th century, Sur and Pumbadisa, two yeshivas that sort of competed and sort of cooperated. It was hot and cold all the time. And... Um, there's a whole chapter in Nelson Bali about the money aspect. I'm not going to do that now. But how did they have their... The yeshivas operated on a, as we shall see in a second, on a Yarchi Kala system, which was, among other reasons, I'm certain, there to save money. Uh, if you run a yeshiva, you have hundreds of guys. That's a lot of money if you're talking about the breakfast, lunch, and supper, or even just breakfast and supper or something, you know. And uh, one way to avoid that is to have most of the student body not there most of the year. Get it? So instead of having to do, I mean, just think if you have a yeshiva, which I'm just making this up, 150 guys, which is not that big. That's a 450 meals a day. Agree? Breakfast, lunch, and supper. Uh, how much is that a week? You said you went into thousands of meals. So uh, that's just stom. So that's a big expense. And in 10th century, <coughs> expenses were expenses the way they are today. So instead, as we shall see now, they went for um, a sort of efficiency model in which they're public sessions of the yeshiva, but a lot of the learning is done away from the yeshiva campus. And you come together for the uh, the formal shiurim twice a year, I guess it was. And here I have the advantage of... A translation of this passage from Nelson Ababli, I found in the art scroll in the Yavna Pumbadisa book. He has an extended translation of it. And it'll be easier for you to understand for that reason. But it's a translation from Nelson Ababli. And listen to this and then we'll comment upon it. Uh, so this is him describing, as he says over here, how they work it all out. Okay? And he says, that they gather together, and he's talking about the yeshivas now, Sur and Pumbadisa. They gather together and come from all their places of settlement for Yachakala, for the Kala months, namely Elul in the summer and Adar in the winter. So it's the end of the summer into the winter. And during the five months between, in other words, most of the year, the Bachram, as we would call today, are not in the yeshiva. So the yeshiva doesn't have to maintain them. They go back to their home. Only a small group of like kolel types, as we would call today, or maybe a few special special, or maybe a few, you know, people with protexia, uh, stay behind, you know, in the yeshiva. Everybody else goes home, and you move to your little town, you know, let's say you're in Aberdeen, Maryland, something like that, and, you, you know, that's all you need. You need a chabrusa, but that's all you need, and then the two of you are supposed to go through the material they'll assign you. So here we go again. They gather together and come from all their places of settlement, meaning all the Jewish communities, villages and whatever, for the Yachikal, which is El in the summer and Ador in the winter, and during the five months between, each of the scholars, 
what we call today the Bacharim, has diligently studied at home the Masechta announced by the Rosh Hashim when they left him. In Adar, he would say, we're going to do this and this Masechta in Elul. And in Elul, he said, we're going to do this and this Masechta in Adar. And so, let's say, for example, they're doing Pesachim. Just making this up. So, uh, and let's say it's Elul. So, you know, now, over the winter, because before Rosh Hashanah, the whole place is going to fall apart and everybody's going to go home. So, over the coming six months, five months, whatever, Tishri, Cheshwan, Kislev, Teves, Shvat, and then you have to travel to get there in Ador. During those months, you're going to do Pesachim. The whole Masechta, half Masechta, whatever. You know, they assign so and so much part. And remember, this is before Rashi and Tosas existed, before anything existed. And so, each of the scholars has diligently studied the track they'd announced them before. And then they come and sit before the Rosh Hashivas in Adar and Elul, and they get Bechinas. So as we'll see, there's a certain, a certain amount of money involved over here if you pass the Bechinas. So, you know, it's a little bit like college in that regard, like a certain club test, you know. You, you, you study the material, and then you take a test. And here's the order. So, so this was the system, and let me put it this way. Um, and then you, you know, you don't have to, um, have a mashkir to watch the people learning or not. The guys who are goofing off are not going to show up because they'll be publicly, publicly humiliated, correct? Rosh Hashiva tests them at least on the girsah. Do you know the Gemara, you know, as far as the, the words are concerned, the girsah? Now, here's the order in which they sit. Okay, Seder uh, The Rosh Hashiva sits at the head, and in front of him are ten are, are, are ten scholars, and this is known as the Darakam or the first row, and they sit facing the Rosh Hashiva. So here we have the concept, uh, and we'll see that it, it it lasted a lot longer than you simply imagine. Okay, uh, but they had the concept that the smarter you are, the closer you sit to the front. You follow? The closer you sit to the Mizrachal and to the Rashid, that's your permanent seat. And so your Hashivas is sort of expressed by where you get to sit, geographically. Of these who sit before him, seven are Reshikalo and three are Chaverim. So obviously, as I said, this is a culture based on the Persian court. They love titles and they love gradations. And there's a difference between a duke and a prince and a count and a baron. You know, that kind of thing. So there's, like you see in Yikum Porkin, Reshi Kala, Reshi Galvosa, Dayana Debavada, all these are certain levels of of uh, of academic titles. Today in America, you say a BA, an MA, a PhD, you know, that kind of thing. And you know how it goes. Oh, you've got only an MA, you don't have a PhD. You know, so it matters a lot to the people whom it matters. Okay? And uh, and he says over there, you see? So you have a title of an aluf and all the rest of it. Um, I'll read it in English. Seven Rishkalas, heads of assembly, and three Chaverim. Why are they called Rishkalas? Because each one of them is in charge of ten members of Sanhedrin. Now, what do you mean Sanhedrin? They had a basin over there of some kind. Not exactly the way we understand it here. And it's the basin in Baghdad. 
and obviously they're looking to have prestige and all the rest of it. But the word yeshiva and the word based in had slightly different meanings then than it has today. And you'd call it, I guess, the assemblage of more learned types. And from then you can recruit members for based in cases, you know, three here, three here, and, and that sort of thing. And uh, each guy has what we would call today in the yeshivas today a Rosh Chabura. But in those days, they were called Rosh Kala. And as they, the seven uh, uh, Rosh Kalas, were called the Alufim. Aluf is like a general, a master. So um, I guess the closest we get to today, I mean, not the same thing exactly, would be like a Magad Shir. Oh, this guy's already risen to the level that in the Yeshiva is a Magad Shir, something like that. Now, I don't know these really Yeshivas. My son, I heard like in Mir and these other places, people have like their own, you know, Chaburs that develop into large followings. So that would be the closest thing, in my opinion, that you'd have today to what they used to call Reish Kala. And here's the custom regarding them, and it's all inherited. When one of the Reish Kalas dies, his son takes over the, the place and sits in it, even if he's young. I'm shocked, <laughs> right? You know, in other words, when they set up the, the, the guys who made the rules, said, fainting hems us, our kids take over. You know, because they made the rules, <laughs> okay? Uh, likewise, if one of the Chaverim die, which is slightly less, if his son is fit to take his place, he sits in it, and none of the other scholars can pass over his colleague. So the actual place you sit in the base medrash can be inherited. It's a little bit like you had later on in synagogues. And you don't have it in America today, but in Europe you sure as heck did, which is there are you know, assigned seats and purchased seats, and God help anybody who sits in the seat of somebody else. You know, when you're not supposed to. In Europe, they took this very seriously. I think, if I'm not mistaken, in some shuls in Europe now, like in Switzerland, places like that, they still keep up this business. Uh, however, if the son cannot fill the father's place, but is worthy of sitting in the seven rows, he can sit in it. So when you already have the concept of the front row and the seven rows behind them, you see, in other words, are you a PhD? Are you an MA? Are you a BA? Are you a garnished? If he's not worthy of sitting in one of the seven rows, he sits with the rest of the disciples, which account altogether um, about 400, right? Now, there's some gearses over here, some say 2,400. I guess too much. It'd be 400 in the going period. And this is when the Yeshivas were doing well financially, he's describing. And the 70 judges who comprise the Sanhedrin are the seven rows. So you see how it goes the Rosh Yeshiva, what we call the Gon, sits in the front. And in front of them are the 70 people who are the senior Kohl guys, that sort of thing. And they're called the Sanhedrin, which means they took upon themselves a grandiloquent title. And that's very Middle Eastern. I mean, they're not a Sanhedrin, but, you know, you give it that honorific title so they should get tremendous respect because they are the, the most knowledgeable over there. Behind them, uh, the 70 judges are seven rows. The first row sits, as we as we mentioned, with the Rashi Kala and all that. Behind them, another 10, and so on in seven rows. So imagine Yeshiva, in which, you know, you have sort of like a half-moon kind of business, and there, you know, these uh, rows and formal rows where you can sit in front of um, the Rashiva and they have certain spots where you can sit. Uh, all the rest of the disciples sit behind them without any fixed place. <laughs> so you, you, you know what that is. But in the seven rows, each one has a fixed place and no one can sit in the place of his, of his colleague. Even if one of the members of the seven rows is bigger in wisdom than the other, he may not sit in the other one's place because he didn't inherit from his father. 
but to give him more money, they increase his stipend, okay, uh, because of his wisdom. So you could be, so to speak, better than the guy in the row in front of you, but his father was one of the original founders of the yeshiva or, you know, the original Talmudim, and if it passed on in the family, all the rest of it. But uh, if you're smarter, and they can tell that by the Bechinas, you'll get more of a, you know, a, more, a bigger kolel check. When the Rosh Hashim wishes to test them in their studies, they all meet with him in the four weeks of Adar, or Elo. And uh, this is interesting, because you have a, a, a Zman Bechina. He sits in the first row. Now, they have a way of doing it. Not like today, where you come, you know, you go and you get, you get tested orally or whatever. Here it's, I mean, you know, just informally, as it were. He sits and the first row propounds the Talmud before him, while the remaining rows listen in silence. So basically, you know, they start with, you know, or the, the, the guys in the first row, they sit and they say, or our boss, and so on and so forth. Uh, and everybody else is quiet. You're not supposed to talk. It's, this privilege is reserved for the people in the first row. See what I mean by the formality? When they reach a section requiring comment, they discuss it among themselves. Meanwhile, the Rashi will listens and considers their words. So he's sitting there, like you know, the Dalai Lama. You know, he knows everything, and he's letting the senior scholars debate among themselves what's the exact shot of this piece in the Gemara. And then he announces his decision on the disputed point. Notice he said this this group is right the way they're reading the Gemara, and they are silent because they know he's already considered their viewpoints on the issues. So that's what I mean when I say this is formal. They've already had these discussions behind closed doors before you have the formal session. So what's the shot? As I understand it, it's as follows. The yeshivas were open, as you see, twice a month. Twice a year, I mean, in, in Elul and in Ador. And they had certain times when they were holding public sessions. I repeat, public sessions. And so the Olam, if they want to, could come and watch. And that's what people did. This was the best movie in town. And it's Baghdad. And you have local Jews, of course. They want to see their local team win. But you also have plenty of people during that time, I'm certain of this, who are merchants or others, who wanted to come to be when the yeshiva is in full session. It's a little bit, it's not the same thing, but it's a little bit like a chassid going to, you know, the formal tisha of the Rebbe, something like that. You want, It's a big happening if you're into that. So anybody at Arei HaTorah or Stamazoy like to see something that looks impressive from the Jewish point of view, because the Jews are in Gullis, but they still have a little bit of a royal court of their own. It's the court of the Torah. I don't mean that in a gushy way. They, they, they're imitating the forms of the, uh, of the Persian government, of the Arab government. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's not really a government. I mean, Russia is not really a king. But in the Olam HaTorah, he, he sort of is. And so when you do these gestures of hierarchy, and, uh, you know, obeisance, and, you know, um, yielding to superiors, it, it gives the chitzonistic impression like you're in front of a real court, a royal court. So uh, when the Rashi pronounces his, his idea, the others are silent because they know he's already considered all the viewpoints. When he finishes announcing the resolutions of all the questions, he lectures about it and interprets the tract that he studied during the winter, each one in his own home. So the height of the situation when he gives a sheer clawly, as we would call today, and in the process, he clarifies what the scholars had disagreed about. Sometimes he asks them the interpretation of the law, which means 
the public, this is a, what we call public bechinas. So he asked them, how do you paskin? They deferred to each other, and then to the Rashiva asking him the answer. You see, in other words, but it's all shtick. They, they, you know, Alphonse and Gaston, you know, what do you say? What do you say? Finally, it's part of the shtick. They say to the Rashiva, okay, you tell us. You're, you're, you're the top guy. For no one can speak in his presence unless he gives permission. And having received permission, each one speaks according to his wisdom. And then the Rashiva elaborates on the interpretation of each law until everything is clear to them. When everything is clarified, one person in the first row rises and lectures on the topic until everyone from least to the greatest understands. Now this is all hyperbole, you know. Whoever was in the first row gave a, a kind of a shear and hopefully, you know, uh, explained, but I mean, you can't do the whole Masechta like that. And all who see him standing knows he speaks only to clarify the passages under discussion. And then the rest of the disciples closely examine the topic, analyze it, and reach a full and complete understanding of it. And this is what they do all month. So imagine, you know, uh, six days a week, I guess, something like that. This kind of thing goes on during that month. So all I'm trying to say is that uh, Purim must have really been interesting in those eras because Purim is smack in the middle of yeshiva season. And I'm not talking about yeshiva season where they go to Orlando. I'm talking yeshiva season when the yeshiva has public session. And all through the month, they're having this business where it's like shtickle bechinas, but it's more like formal public sessions. And when he says, everybody then talks about it until they understand it. Imagine the following. You have hundreds of guys sitting in the background, all the way in the back. And the Rashibi says his thing. And the head magachir, something like that, the, the guy in the front row, the Rabbi Koleski, over there, as I would call him, he gives his shear. And then... They hock. <laughs> then all the guys in the back start arguing over it and this and discussing it. And the whole place is full of tumult. And the public is watching and say, wow, this is the glory of the Torah. You see? You see hundreds of guys in this big uh, building. And they're all carrying on and screaming at each other, this and that and the other. And people say, oh, that's the cold Torah. Wow. And people walk away from that and say, I was at the Yeshiva back at And boy, that was a movie. That was something. You see, in the fourth week, after they'd gone through all that Masechta, let's say, for example, Sanhed, um, what I say, Pesachim, in the fourth week, the whole Sanhedrin, which is the, 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 the main Kolo guys, and all the disciples are called to assemble, and the Rosh Hashiva examines them and questions them and tests them until he discovers who were the more accomplished scholars. When he notices one who has not completely mastered the, 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 the tractate, as he puts it over here, um, right? If he sees his Gemara isn't clawed by him, Sodr Bapiv, he really comes down on him, and he cuts his kolel check, and he screams at him, this is the old world in which, forget this business like we have today of uh, self-esteem. In the old world, and in this country, you know, 100 years ago, certainly 120 years ago, you used to have what you call public examinations. In public school, I'm talking about. And also in yeshivas. Uh, this is very much the case in the Central European, like the Hungarian yeshivas in Pressburg, whatever. You had public examinations. So in other words, the teacher, or if it's a Jewish thing, the Rebbe, would be a pu- you know in a public venue and everybody can come and watch. And then he asks questions of the students. And, uh, you know, depending how hard he wants to be. 
and everybody's watching you. And so it's your chance either to shine and gain a lot of points or to have a busyness and make your parents feel terrible, you know? And, you know, some people do better and some people do worse. Nowadays, we'd be shocked at this. Is how can you embarrass, humiliate, and all the rest of people would never get over it. But in the old days, they felt it's fine to humiliate people. It makes them, uh, you know, work harder next time not to be humiliated. They even beat you up. I'm, I'm very serious. In the Yvain Mitzula, they talk about doing this in the Yeshivas in Poland. You know, so verbal violence, physical violence, was once upon a time part and parcel of what you call the Yeshiva Bechina system. And as I said before, if you didn't do your work, then somehow or other, get out of that Bechina, <laughs> that Bechina situation. You know, uh, I don't know what the people did. They shoot the bull. Uh, but you won't get a check. That's why you won't get a check. So, you know, if you come from a well-to-do family, you can, uh, you know, play the game and uh, avoid the consequences, I suppose. Uh, that's, that, that, that's what I would uh, imagine, okay? So, again, uh, He cut his check, because his money, and scream at him publicly, and he shows him the parts that he's slipping up in. In other words, you don't know the second parak at all, or you messed up this Gemara and all this, in front of everybody. These are the parts of the Gemara that you were lazy in learning. And he warns him, If you screw up next Bechina, next six months like this, we're, gonna get, we're not going to cut your check, we're going to give you zero, no money at all. Well, because we're not in the business of welfare over here. There were people knowing this. They learned up real hard because they know a Bechin is coming and they don't want to get the public humiliation. Plus, they don't want to get the financial penalties. They shouldn't mess up in the Bechin. And then, of course, they dismiss the major part of the student body, except a few that stay all year. And they tell them which um, Gemara, which Masech is going to be tested on in six months from now in Elul. This is for the guys that count. For the regular Talmudim out there, they can learn whatever Gemara they want. The guys are actually getting checks, right? Getting money, they got to learn the yeshiva's mesechta. And then he talks about how they did handle the responsa. So we're all familiar with the shalos and shuvas hagaonim, with the fact that the gaonim in Babylonia, the heads of the two yeshivas, used to get shilas from all over the world and all sorts of things. And they would answer them and send it back and they would get money People would write them shalos and send them money at the same time. And just being deferred to, to ask your, solicit your opinion in terms of laws and interpretation of Gemara is a sign of, of um, submission to your authority. If I'm writing to you, ask a shaila, I mean, it means I hold a view of you, right? Now, I repeat, the whole point of the, not the whole point, but a major point of the Gonic Yeshivas was to present this public persona so it should look like it's like a Vatican or something like that. You know, it's the, it's the like a the the highest place. It's the you know the the Lishkasagosis and so forth. Uh, and the way to do that, they felt in those days in the tenth century, was through this great formality. And so Bechoyim Mechodesh Adar 
So they used to get Shilas from all over the place. They would wait till the month of Ador. Now, really, they would work on the answers beforehand. But, you know, there's publicly, you wait till the month of Ador. Right? Yeah, I'll read it in English. So I shouldn't have to translate it. Um, one person, uh, here was the custom with the Shilas and Shubas. One person reads to the assembled scholars all of the questions that reach them each day at Akala, and meaning during the five months, and the Rosh Hashiva grants them permission to give their answers. So in other words, they ask a question, let's say, for example, about Pesach. And it's again, it's a certain ritual. Where Rosh Hashiva says, I guess, what do you say? And if deference, they say, no, we will not voice our opinion in your presence. Finally, he says, no, I insist. And then everyone... In the from the leading scholars, voices his opinion according to his knowledge and understanding, and they raise objections and find solutions, debating and arguing each point and studying it very thoroughly. Now, I don't believe that this actually happened um, in public session. I think that it's like formalistic. They've already done the discussions behind closed doors. And by way of presenting to the public and the scholars who are listening the different sadadim of the Shaila, so you would have people, you know, present the different aspects of it. But really, all the work has been done beforehand, I think. Anyway, um, the Rosh Hashiva hears their discussions, considers all the points they raise against each other, and persists in studying their arguments until the truth comes clear to him. So in other words, they, argue, they discuss it and argue it out, and then they reach a conclusion... And when they reach the conclusion, until the truth comes clear to him, as he says, he immediately dictates his reply to one of the scribes. So if this is true, then when you see the Shubas Agonim, now this is the 10th century, doesn't mean it was that all the time, but many of the Shalas and Shubas Agonim are from this era, actually. If you see it, you you can sort of understand the very very, uh, clipped and cryptic nature, often, in the Shubas Agonim, which is very short, apodictic, and to the point. And it goes through the whole business. And that does fit the model of somebody who's just listened to a half hour, an hour of arguments this way and that way, and has finally reached a conclusion and which he's basically summarizing <coughs> in a succinct way the different opinions, arguments, and the final conclusions on this point without giving you the whole rechus. Because the Chuas are going to be famous for skipping their rechus. Right? The, the, the prolix part. Anyway... Uh, this process is repeated each day until all the questions that arrived since last uh, Zman from the various Jewish communities are answered. So this pl- takes place over the whole month of, of, of Ador. At the end of the month, all the questions and answers are read in front of the whole assemblage and then are signed by the Rosh Hashiva. So you see, it's really the product of a communal effort. He he let the other guys be mine in it. Pilpul Chavirim, we call it, at a high level. You know, this one says this way, that one says that's far until they finally reach what they consider to be the, the, the proper answer. And then they're signed by Rosh Hashiva, and then the replies are sent to those who brought the inquiries, and the stipend, then they give out the checks. Okay? Then they give out the checks. So, um, as you see, the yeshiva there is more than what it is today, which is just a place for studying, but it had this aspect of also being 
what we would call today a kind of Sanhedrin or a base in a Godot, meaning you send your Shilas there, the the answers that are given, the Chubas, are not necessarily the opinion of the individual Rosh Hashiva. Because to tell you the truth, most people don't even know who he is. A lot of these Gonim were like old when they started and they lasted a couple of years. And then the guy dies and somebody else takes over. And if I'm living in Spain or North Africa, I don't know who's there now. You know, I knew it was there a couple of years ago. I don't know if he's still there. It's not like you have telephones or things like that then. You're, you're writing to the yeshiva of Surah, to the collectivity of the scholars. And uh, that's what the word yeshiva meant many times in Jewish history. You have to be careful when you use the term yeshiva that it's not necessarily identical to what we have today, which is that yeshiva is there for theoretical study. And the Bayesian is therefore non-theoretical study. Uh, yeshiva once upon a time meant the collectivity of all the main guys in that particular locale. If it's the Gonim, that's the main one in the world. But you had, you know, the term yeshiva used in this way in Italy, certainly, and um, in Sfarad to some uh, in, to some degree. And what it basically would mean, I'm just using this as an example. Uh, I don't mean it literally. Suppose somebody had some shal and they sent the shal to Baltimore. Imagine if the Vada Rabbanim, I'm just making this up, the Vada Rabbanim convened to have a, a session in which they address formally this Shila. And this rabbi said this, and that rabbi said this, and there's older rabbis and younger rabbis, and this and that and the other. So you're dealing with 20, 30 people here in Baltimore, uh, however many there would be in Lakewood and whatever town you're in. And uh, the only difference is that if it's the time of Gaonim, the head guy would say like this, look, you know, we are not sharing our differences of opinion out there with the public. That's a private. When we finally work this all out, we get a unanimous psaac that is signed by everybody. And that represents, you know, the will of the institution called the Vada of Baltimore. It doesn't exist, but I'm just saying it, it, it was like that in the Gonic times and other times in Jewish history. And when you get a psaac from a bunch of people, it has a bigger punch than if you get a psaac from an individual scholar. Now, later this changed in Jewish history, and now Shalas and Shubas are for individual scholars. I get that. But um, there were many places, a fair number of places anyway in Jewish history, especially the Gonic period, um, in which the answers were given, the answers were given institutionally. Excuse me, I'm sneezing. Um, the answer was given institutionally, not individually. So even though it's signed by Rav Haigon, Lav Dafkat Haigon came up with this on his own. It's Haigon and his gang. Shavir Gon and his gang. Now the gang are the big Talmud Chachamim, his team. Maybe that's a better word. And his team. So you're getting already a psaac from a team of senior people. That packs a big wallop. That packs a big punch. And that's how they used to do it. Now, uh, and then as he concludes, then they get down to cash. You know, then they give out the checks. And everybody goes home. And that's a description, a very famous description. It is famous now, anyway. But I told you, it was even in the arts role. Um, what's interesting is the following. Um, I'm holding in front of me a very interesting book, which has never been translated into English, which came out, I don't know, 20 years ago, something like that, uh, from the late professor Mordechai Breuer from uh, Hebrew, one of the Breuers. And he was a historian. Among other things, he was a historian of yeshivas. And he actually published a book, a very interesting book, from the Merkaz uh, Shazar, that's the Hebrew U, uh, University Press. He was a professor of Hebrew U, obviously a from guy. 
and uh, and it's the only book I know of its type which studies the yeshiva as an institution phenomenologically. It's called Ohalei Torah, HaYeshiva Tavnisa Vatoldosel from Mordechai Berb. And in these Israeli books, there's always a page all the way in the back that gives you in English. The Tense of Torah, the Yeshiva, its structure and its history, from Mordechai Breuer, and even has one page in English of the table of contents. You know, uh, the curriculum, methodology of study, techniques and learning, Yeshiva schedule, organization, uh, maintenance, support, administration, masters and students, students initiative, Yeshiva in the Kehillah, and epilogue, the post-Holocaust Yeshiva, which that should be a big part and it's a fat book. And the truth is, I'm, I was always surprised that they never translated this in English because that would be a seller. Everybody would buy a copy of it in English uh, in this country because people are interested in that. And he's a real genuine historian. And he studies, therefore, the changes and the non-changes that uh, attach to the institution of Yeshiva, which now has been around for thousands of years and uh, has assumed different uh, forms, Okay. So, like I say, the way they used to learn in Central Europe is not identical to the way we have yeshivas in America today. I think, for example, uh, they used to do the uh, laning not in the base medish, but the shear is in the base medish. And today, the definition of yeshiva is for the bulk of the boys, supposed to be the learning is actually in the base medish. That's just one example. That's more of a Jeremy Bentham type situation where the mashkiach can watch you, you know. Uh, and... I'll just read you a paragraph. As they said, it hasn't been translated, it's so only in English. But keep this in mind, what we just read you from, from Nasan Ababli. And he says, this is Professor Breuer, one of the outward manifestations or simonim of where a guy was holding among the other students, in other words, where you stand in terms of the IQ or the pecking order, how chashev you are, how you makom where you get to sit in the base medrash. She was going above That wasn't as formal as the Babylonian. She was that I just shared with you from Nathan, the Babylonian. That was an extreme rigid formality. But some of that, that I just read you, the hierarchical uh, obsession, the hierarchical obsession that was clearly there in the Babylonian yeshivas of the Gaonic period. Some of that has stayed in the yeshivas down the centuries. So the closer you are to the Mizrach, it was a sign of your more chashub. And throughout history, he says, and I'm taking his word on it, that in the different yeshivas in different countries, in Ashkenaz, Svar, this, that, and the other, the, uh, the closer, the, 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 the Mekomos, those, the seats, Closer to Mizrach was Bechaz Koshon Shabchia Bochum. That was for the elite of the yeshivas. Bechino Kormalachas yeshivas made Balitosis. So, for example, from the time of Balitosis, it says, meaning this is from the Sefer Hasidim, you know, which was not the Balitosis at all, but it's contemporary with that in Germany. And in the Sefer Hasidim, it says, Echad Hoya Moshe Talmido Eslo, a guy put a certain, one Rosh Hashiva put a certain student, as we would say, right in front of him, in the base of Manish, gave him a good seat. Listen to this story. Why does he get to sit in front of you? He's not the best guy. There are other Talmidim that are more Kharif. And he said like this, 
Amar said Rashi was telling us, "Aviv Shalzeh Gorim LeTarasi Sheespik Mizonos." He's a rich kid. We need to. We have to kiss up to the father, right? This guy's father is a major supporter of the yeshiva. So you know the old line: "You know the shach, but he knows the nakudas hakesef." That's that. That's what that's some sefer chasidim. And you can't tell whether he's saying it approvingly or disapprovingly, but economics is economics. And the richest guy, his son's going to sit in the in, in the best spot. Bishiva shel Yosef Karbitzvat nog haklash shakalogom mechavir Moshe b'kodesh yisrael, and you know that also from Yosef Karas Yeshiva in the fifteen hundreds. The better guy sat closer to Rashiva. If you're not such a guy, he's far away. Vainzel dugma, and and this is you know just an example. Bishiva's Talmud Torah Ashkenazim b'Venetia. In the famous yeshiva in Venice, in Padua, those guys who had a chaver, that's like having a BA, bachelor's degree, they had a sapsom yuchad. Right? They had a special table, a special, uh, you know, uh, uh, benches. Rosh Hashiva, Kaval, And the Rosh Hashiva in Venice, he, you know, assigned the seats. You get it? He assigned the seats. Lafiat Tachonis, Klois, Mannheim. If you go to Germany, he had the Kloys in Mannheim, which is sort of like a shtickle, um, kolel pussy shiva in Mannheim. Nikos said, Kach, here's how it worked. But the Konos Yeshiva, she ain't come up with my Korot. I'm sorry. Seder Yeshiva, Shalabacharim, Apia Goral. So there are two groups. Of, it's a Kloys, so therefore it's like a kolel with some junior students attached to it, also non married. So, the Bacharim, they get their assigned seats by lottery. In other words, they roll the dice by a girl. But the more senior students over there, that goes by, you know, how, how well you know how to learn. The guys know how to learn get the better seats. Yes, And there's a special paragraph in the charter of this clause where it says, now listen to this. Rishus biyada talmud hakoshev shulomid yoser tov mizeh hayu shlomayla mimenu l'tvo mimenu lamed imo lemivchan l'fneyechem b'lamdoni haklois. Any guy who feels resentment that the other guy has a seat ahead of me, a row ahead of me, but I know how to learn better than him, so I have the right, if I'm the complainer, to go one of the senior guys in yeshiva l'amdoni haklois. And take a bechina between him and me, and if I emerge successful, and as I I do better in the bechina than this guy, he loses his seat and I get it. Who Okay, so you can just let me put it this way: that's their way of making sure people stay in learning. You, if if you start screwing around and messing up, somebody will grab your seat and you'll be humiliated. Uh was a muser belita. This is a famous uh, shtick of the mashkichim in the Musar yeshivas and literature yeshivas, the ones that you and I know, which is the mashkich assigns the seats. Get it? That way you include Musar and the Cheshmonas and all the rest of it. And you can be darn sure and tells in other places that are like revolts against this. The city should tell me to mirror. There was a special uh, hierarchy of seating in, in Mir. 
there were special tables that were, you know, for, for the elite guys. And uh, other people had tables, um, you know, based on... If you're a middle-of-the-road guy, you get the middle seats. And if you're a lesser guy, you get the rear seats, those kind of things. Uh, he says, at the end of the 19th century, his spashate, she was lit to or stender michelo, that, you know, each guy had his own stender, and nobody can, uh, you know, mess with it. You have a chazak on it. And you kept the same seat. You had a right to that seat for many years. And a guy who had learned in the yeshiva was, like you say, a good guy. And then he left and got married and all the rest of it. If he comes back for Elul, like they used to come back, you know, in the Litvish yeshiva sometimes, he gets to, you know, to, to, to sit in that seat and get their stender back. So the regular yeshiva guy has to, like, vacate it. Uh, that's Chaim Grada territory. You know, people say, oh, these guys come and take my seat away and all the rest of it. Um, so you see that uh, this notion, while not as radical or formal as described in Nathan of Baghdad in the Gaonic Yeshivas of the 10th century, uh, was always part of the Yeshiva structure because at the end of the day, Yeshiva is an elitist institution. For better or worse, it cultivates elitism. And uh, cultivates elitism vis-a-vis the Balabatim. You're a yeshiva guy. You're the pe'er. You know, you're you're better than the others. Uh, now the Chassidim didn't like that, but nevertheless, this is the way it is, and it's like that now in Chassidish yeshivas as well. You know, if I know a lot and you don't know, I'm going to feel more superior to you, even though theoretically that's that's wrong, mitzvah hamusser. But you know, that's how they, the yeshivas gave up that fight thousands of years ago and cultivate the elitism. And within the walls of the yeshiva, they even more cultivated the elitism by, uh, you know, such stratagems of, uh, you know, geography and where you get to sit and, you know, who gets to do this and, and that and who gets to kibbutim. So uh, ritual honors and dishonors are like always part of any kind of uh, culture and hierarchical society. You have it in universities in a certain way. You certainly have in political arena in a certain way. You have in social life in a certain way. Those who are in the outs are always arguing to overthrow the system. But whenever the outs get become the ins, then all of a sudden they subscribe to the system or set up their own. That's the, that, that, that's the way that goes. I'm not a sociologist or that, you know, there are people that write, uh, book, I'm serious, write books about this business. You know, like even in a primitive society in the jungle, they're going to have this kind of hierarchy. But... Uh, the yeshivas did not skip over that at all. Anyway, I thought that's interesting. And I want to again thank Gideon, <coughs> who's covering three talks, actually. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll proceed in the week. Have a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.